please welcome back to the stage your host, Damien Barr. Hi. Uh, welcome back. Thank you all for the questions you scribbled on the break. It seems that you felt inspired to find your voice. Uh, phone numbers, as usual, will not be submitted. <laughs> not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced, wrote James Baldwin, the black queer pioneer that you saw up um, on our slideshow. Tonight's second guest has had more than most to face. He was born into a poor family in Texas, raised Mormon in that already God-fearing state, then abandoned by his father before having to fight a violent stepfather. Throughout all this, he had his two brothers and his brave, brilliant mother, a polio survivor who redefines resilience and whose heart is as limitless as her hopes for her boys. Mama's Boy is the story of that woman and how her middle son went from being a little boy too scared to speak to a man whose bold, beautiful words gave new voice to Harvey Milk and a community silenced for far too long. Please welcome Dustin Lance Black. Now, is this healthy? What with the environment? Therapy in front of an audience, because that's oh. what it feels like. I have my clock here so I can tell you when right. your 15 minutes is up. The right. bill will arrive at the end. Um, they're a very non judgmental therapeutic audience, right? <laughs> right? Yes, yes, it's a safe space. Um, oh, no, ish, no, no. safe ish. I don't need that. Um, my, my joy would be if you would do as a wee reading yes. from the beginning, um, just sure. so we could hear it in your voice. Um, this, I've chosen one of the bits that won't make me cry. Okay. Um, you promise? I promise. All Ish. right. Here's your notes. Okay, there's... You've written some terrible things about me. That's true. <laughs> so this is the prologue, then. Yeah. I'll do the first half of the prologue. That would be is great. Is that good? Yes. All right. <clears throat> A hot, gauzy morning in the late summer of 1987. That was the first time I ever laid eyes on the streets of Los Angeles. I was 13 years old, but looked 10 at best an agonizingly shy Texas boy with eyes like water, hair like the sun, and a tanker truck's worth of secrets. I was jammed in the backseat of my mom's massive yellow Malibu classic between my little brother Todd and our stinking cat, Airborne. My mom said we were on the move. Others would have called it on the run. Days earlier, my family had packed up what little we had of value and vanished without notice from our, from our lives in the Lone Star State, leaving behind my middle school in San Antonio and our Mormon church in the Randolph Ward, heading west. My mom was behind the wheel, her hairspray stiffened curls resting on worried shoulders as she worked the hand controls to speed up and slow down her beast of a car a colossal artifact from a former life that now had to be wrested into submission by a woman who walked on crutches, her legs in braces, her spine fused and held together with metal bars hidden just beneath the scars that ran the length of her body. My big brother, Marcus, sat up front beside her. His hair was just as long as hers, but kissing a black leather punk rock jacket covered in pins and buttons that shouted obscenities my mom had miraculously, if not willfully, grown blind to. He had a map spread out on his lap. We were lost. We were scared. 
but in good Southern Mormon fashion, we kept our terrors to ourselves. Here's the thing. We'd been taught our entire lives that places like Los Angeles were filled with folks who traded their souls and salvation for fame, booze, drugs, cash, cars, heterosex, group sex, and dirty, filthy, faggot sex. Los Angeles was the embodiment of an unfamiliar, exotic America that we've been warned to avoid. Liberal, often coastal, a place for sinners and moral relativists, for our ragtag family on the run, passage through this city was a test of spiritual strength. So we plugged our noses in back, Marcus did his best to navigate up front, and my tiny runaway mom rotated the hand control that turned the gear that pressed down on the gas pedal that she hoped might propel us to safety. Two hours later, Marcus and my mom finally spotted the entrance to the five freeway heading north. The terrain grew steeper as we headed into the hills and over the grapevine, a stretch of highway out of LA, where the snarl of traffic gave way to golden grasses, a reservoir lake, ranches, and a meadow filled with wildflowers. These were more familiar sights. This felt more like home. My mom looked up into her rearview mirror, found my eyes, and with all of her mighty love and warmth, sent me a strong, silent message. You're safe now, my Lancer. I took a breath or two, pulled out a pen and a spiral notebook, and wrote a letter to a girl back in San Antonio. She and I had recently participated in a one-act drama competition. She'd played Eve, I'd played Adam. Her mom was our drama teacher. I described Los Angeles as the second gayest city in the world. It wasn't a compliment. I was already fairly certain that San Francisco was in first position thanks to AIDS hitting the national news when old Hollywood heartthrob Rock Hudson fell out of his closet and into his grave. Since then, even the news shows in Texas had started offering up images of emaciated gay men, most in San Francisco, but others in New York and Los Angeles, dying terrible deaths thanks to their, quote, lifestyle choices. So yes, it seems San Francisco was the closest to hellfire, but I was fairly certain Los Angeles wasn't far behind. I suppose I felt it necessary to let someone in Texas know I survived our journey through this foreign land. But as we reached the top of the mountain, something in my God-fearing heart stirred, and I looked back toward the city. It was calling to me. If I'm being honest, it had started calling well before we set out on this adventure. If Los Angeles was dangerous, I was curious. How true were the stories I'd heard? Did people there really do so many strange things to their bodies, their minds, and one another? Did they really make all of those movies and TV shows I'd fallen in love with on the rare occasion we were allowed to watch them? And the most dangerous question of all, did the nation's current teen heartthrob, Ricky Schroeder, with his golden hair and ocean blue eyes, actually live somewhere down in all that chaos? <laughs> that question and all of its invasive roots and sticky webs lingered longest in my mind as I watched the city glimmer and shine in the morning sun until it slowly disappeared behind a veil of blue-white smog.
That's all I have to do, right? That's yeah, it. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, it was really striking reading that um, how similar your feelings about about getting to LA were, in, in some ways, to Tracy's feelings of getting to London. Also, my own in getting to Brighton. It was a place that I'd only heard about on the news because gay men were dying there. Mm. Um, so it was a kind of Gomorrah place, but also thrilling at, at the same time. Um, but I guess you had to keep your excitement about it secret. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I'm pretty thrilled to be in Brighton, by the way. This is kind of amazing. Can I tell a Brighton story really quick? Yes, do it. All right, so I, when I was first dating this guy named Tom, who you might have heard of, and he lived in a place called Plymouth, which is, you know, uh, further southwest, and, uh, and his, one of his grandmothers wasn't so sure about me and all of the attention I was, you know, giving her grandson Tom. And she came up to me at some event, having sort of sussed me out, maybe looked me up and said, you know, you shouldn't keep coming to Plymouth. You'd love Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> Finally. Wait, you've not been? I've never been here, no. What? No, I know. I was texting Tom on the way. I'm like, this is ridiculous. It's an hour away, and there's, there's like rainbows and glitter everywhere. <laughs> it's fantastic. And that's not just because you're here. Um, you can get, we'll, I'll get you a brick, and we'll go for the riot later for our freedom I'm riot. Ready. For I'm ready. little mini Stonewall. Right. I really can't believe that you've never been here. Um, okay, mm. well, the, more on that in a bit. Um, so, um, this is, you read a bit about where you were headed towards. Let's go back to where you were coming from. Yes. Um, and who you were going there with. Because the title of the book is Mama's Boy. Um, it's really, it's, it's, to begin with, certainly much more about your mother um, than it is about you. So let's talk about her and the place that you start your life in. So Rose Anna Whitehead. Her name changes through, through the book. Yeah, she, she changed it purposefully as she kind of took on different identities. As she, as she decided to grow up very, very early. Uh, out of necessity, really. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and this gets to the root of why I even write this book. Uh, my mom uh, came from a very conservative area, uh, a place called Lake Providence, Louisiana. Uh, and it's, it's time and again uh, been the poorest city in America. And she lived on the south side of the river uh, with nine or eight other children being raised by my grandmother, Koki. And uh, oh, you this, never met. You never. Met I never Koki. met Koki, but I feel like I know Koki so well, uh, just because of the stories that I I would hear, and because I think I had I inherited a lot from her. I'll tell you a bit about her. Uh, she raised nine children on the south side of the river, which was the poor side of the river, on a tenant farm, uh, which means someone else lets you farm it, and at the end of the year, you usually are more in debt. You didn't, they, they, they devised it in a way so that you could never make enough money in that farm to even pay the rent, so you're just increasingly in debt. And she somehow managed that on her own. Uh, and, and, and to me, what was, what's striking is that though she was making just, you know. Like, so where was your grandfather? So he was off drinking somewhere uh, for most of the time. Uh, and, and he had kind of vanished and, and gone to be with other women. And, um, and she was raising these kids alone. And at one point, uh, there was, at, when my mother was two years old, she stopped being able to move her legs. At first she was complaining because uh, her brother was jumping on the couch, it was hurting her legs, she's two. Uh, Koki treasured my mom in a very special way. She called her her Rose. Uh, and I think at that, and she wanted to love my mother differently. She had come to a certain age. My mother was the seventh of all of these children. Uh, she wanted this to go very, very well. She wanted to finally settle into what love might mean uh, between parent and child. But then uh, at two years old, my mother's 
aching legs turned into an inability to breathe. And so here you have this woman who doesn't have a car, doesn't have a phone. She gets to a neighbor. They rush my mother to Vicksburg, uh, which is a state over to a hospital there. They rip off all of her clothes, all of my grandmother's clothes to be burned because my mother was showing signs of polio. And one of the first signs of what would eventually take about 3,000 lives in that area. Uh, my mom uh, would not recover for some time. She was put into an iron lung to help her breathe. Uh, and from then, Sorry, you say iron lung. That sounds like something from centuries ago, but we're actually talking about fairly, fairly recently, especially well, in a country that's so advanced and so wealthy. Well, it was 1950. I mean, this was all you got. Yeah. I mean, it did, but it did look like uh, something from a science fiction film, right? It was just pumping air in to push the air out of the child or the person and then sucking it out to let them expand. So that's what... Uh, and, and, you know, and my mom would go from hospital to hospital for many, many years. Um, and, you know, this is the United States of America, there's no NHS. So it's what you can afford, what you can beg folks to give you to be able to get some sort of decent care. Uh, there's, I'll, I'll say the stories, but many of them are horrific. What I love about Koki, and what I think I inherited from her, um, I hope I did, through my mother, was that Koki told my mother not to listen to the nurses and the doctors. Because what they were trying to do was set expectations of what was going to be possible for a child who, she did regain her hands and some of her arms, mm. but nothing below that, ever. Um, and so they said, you know, you're not going to fall in love. Uh, you won't be getting married. You won't be going to university. You won't be holding a job. You certainly won't be having children. And Koki said, fuck that noise. I'm sure she didn't use that word. <laughs> and said, do not let anyone tell you what's possible and impossible. And, and because of that, because of that spirit, uh, my mother made a checklist of all the things the doctors and nurses told her she'd never be able to do and, and went down them one by one and, and, and proved them wrong in, in, as the book will tell you, in spectacular fashion. I mean, she, she does really redefine resilience. She is an incredibly spirited woman. But just to give a sense of you know, how incredible those achievements are, and we'll, we'll come to those in a moment, your mother used crutches for the rest of the rest of her life. And that was one of the ways that you knew she was coming because you could hear the noise. Yeah. The kind of well, click clack noise. She, she didn't want to be in a wheelchair. Yeah. And that was a, a strange decision. So they ended up having to fuse her spine with these metal rods, um, which uh, she, that was the surgery she nearly died in. But it meant that she could be rigid enough to walk like a pendulum with mm. crutches. Uh, yes, but it also meant I could always hear her coming. Yeah, it's very handy for yeah, teenage boys. Yeah, it's very handy yeah. for teenagers. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Here she comes. Um, yeah. Here I go. Um, so, steady. Um, so, um, she, she's, she's, the, she's the seventh, um, seventh of nine. How is it that she begins to set about proving these people wrong, going through this list? What, what is it that you think inspires her to, to, to move? Because she could very easily have sunk into despair, become one of the people that she'd seen in the institutions in, in Louisiana and, and Georgia. What was it that, that made her want to not be like one of those people? I think she just, she was, uh, it's something in, on the genes perhaps, but it's, uh, she was just blind to impossibility. I remember people would often call her naive, uh, her own family members when she would talk about the things she wanted to do next. Uh, and so, uh, she, and, and there was a stubbornness there. I don't know where it comes where it came from. And there was a, a flirtation there. Like she, she absolutely refused uh, to believe that she wouldn't one day fall in love or be able to get men to love her. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that happened, you know, I met my mom. My mom was 
you know, well, you know, when I, by the time I was one or two or three and could see who she was, she had these dresses that were hymned to the floor. She was a good Mormon housewife. I mean, she never swore, never drank, certainly no cigarettes, anything like that. When I did the research for this, I got to know a very different young woman yeah. who wrote these letters to the young priests in training who were like 18, 19, 20 years old. She would have been like 14, 15, 16. And in an explicit fashion explained to them why it is they should leave the priesthood for her. <laughs> right? And she did her hair perfectly, every makeup done perfectly. Everything from here up was like spectacular. Yeah. And, and so the, and the same held for uh, as she got older and she got into her later teenage years and eventually did go to university, by the way, yeah. uh, she started... First person in her family, not just to go to university, but to finish high school. To Sure, yeah. yeah. I think there was a, high, so a couple of high school finishers, but she was definitely the first off to university. And, um, and she started doing what, I guess, would, what is the app today? Uh, I don't know, like the dating app. But it was to young uh, soldiers in Vietnam. She would send a little like picture of herself, a little portrait of herself done up perfectly. So from here to here, she's like killer hot. <laughs> and, and then she would get these pictures back in return yeah. from these young men. Now, if any of them in the correspondence I read ever said, let's meet up, I'm coming back, she would just cease correspondence. And then on occasion, there was, well, there's one in particular uh, who ended up losing his ability to move and they struck up a, a friendship and a correspondence. But she just, did not like to hear that things are impossible. And I have to say, I'm exactly the same way. And I don't know if that's how I was raised or if it's just something in the blood. It drives people crazy around us. Uh, it certainly did for her. Um, you said but, she was, go on. But in terms of like, I think what's important for the book to know about her is my mom came from a certain place. So um, she came from a, a very conservative home that was Southern Baptist and when she, felt like that wasn't the right faith for her, that she needed cleaner, stricter boundaries. She became Mormon, very conservative. This is already the southern United States. It's a very conservative area. And when she defied yet again uh, the things that folks said she couldn't do, she joined up in the military. So military, Mormon, Texan. She was voting for Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, I guess that's the equivalent of like Margaret Thatcher. I don't know. Or maybe they were the same in drag. I don't know yeah. what, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, she was just, she was that. And she gave birth to this. It was outrageous. So, I mean, not, I don't, I don't want to get ahead of anything, but yes, I made my mother the lead of this book. I made our uh, relationship the lead of this book because the purpose of this book wasn't just to be, you know, to tell the things that happened in my life or to pat myself on the back for this or that. The purpose of this book is how does a woman like my mom, who is so incredibly conservative, have a relationship, and a strong relationship, with someone like me, who instead of going on a Mormon mission, decided, oh, I'm gonna go to Hollywood and make movies and fight for gay equality. How do we do it? So the answer, the question I have for you is, did you have the answer to that before you wrote the book, or did the book help you work it out? And were there any places that the book took you um, that surprised you? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. I, I, I had the answer, uh, I had the answer to how we did it uh, before I started writing the book. I knew how we did it. Uh, I had to, my father hit the road when I was six. So my little brother was two, I was six, my big brother's 10. And at that point, it's just us and a, a woman who's never driven a car, at that point never had a job, 
can't walk around. So I'm the man of the house now because my big brother's off, you know, discovering marijuana and who knows what else. I'm, uh, and, and so I'm raising her as much as she's raising me in many ways. What did that feel like for you as a, as a child? Were you aware of that as a, as a pressure? Did, yes. Did it feel normal? Yeah. No, yeah. no. no it was not normal. Yeah. Of course not. Did no. you hide it from people at school? Did you, how uh, did you cope with it? This is like therapy. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, yes. I had to hide everything from yeah. everyone at school. We were also like Mormon in a big Baptist or Catholic town. Like, that was already not going to be cool. Uh, you know, if someone came out with a Diet Pepsi, I was like, you're going to hell. <laughs> uh, that was tough, right? And so I, I felt so, and I also knew by six years old, I had a crush on the 10-year-old down the street, big time crush. Um, and, and I also knew by six years old, thanks to the Mormon prophet being beamed in via sa satellite, that where I come from, the faith I come from, uh, this, he said in his words, the sin of murder is akin to the sin of homosexuality, which was a really cool word for about you know, a week before I found out what it meant. And I knew it was me. And there were all these other words that you learned if, uh, if you were in Texas, if you were, which is where we were living at that point, if you were in the military, and none of it was good news. So I had that. I had the fact that my mom looked incredibly different. At this point, she's up walking like a pendulum, but uh, the, the polio-induced scoliosis, her spine's shaped like an S. And, um, and I'm becoming aware of that as too big a difference. I'm just filled with too big a differences to be able to survive and be accepted in this area. So I just, as a six-year-old logic, I just went silent. I related to what Tracy was saying in a big way, you know, sometimes silence for me was safety in a way. Uh, silence was a place I could be with me and I could trust me and that was about it. And um, so did you did you have stuff you wanted to say and you just thought I can't say it? or did did, did did the stopping saying result in you stopping thinking, stopping feeling? Did you, was that a conscious? No, no, no. I had so it was all going on inside. It just, yeah. You just were keeping it there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would see I would go into a classroom in school and I would see the kids doing this or that, you know, coloring, and I'd be like, that's incredibly uninvented, how dull. I didn't say that. Yeah, I, kept I mean, that that's probably wise. That's probably wise. Yeah. But I was, I, was, I was quickly sent off to the principal, and I spent my first two years of school with her, because I just wouldn't say a word. Um, uh, and she was a funny character with hairsprayed up to here. You've lived in Texas, you know what I'm talking about, like solid. The higher the hair, yeah. the closer to gold. Big nails. <laughs> he knows it. Um, <clears throat> And, uh, and so, yeah, it was just, I, it, was, it was silence out in the world uh, for many, many years. And then, uh, and then at home, I would talk with my mom. Okay. But, you know, so what long story short, I just, I, we had to figure it out. We always had to figure out how to keep our relationship alive. So I always knew how we did it. Yeah. You asked a, an interesting question, though. I, I get a certain portion of the way through the book. Um, and this has been a long simmering thing. And I realize... I know how it is my mother, the hard work she had to do, and we can get to the specifics at a certain point. I knew the courage she had to show to actually show up and get to know me and my friends, though we represented something that to her was too foreign, too different. Uh, I knew the curiosity she had to show to actually listen to the stories and to absorb who we were and to learn who we were, to, to let those stories maybe melt away some misconceptions and lies. And I appreciated that so much. That's the work that kept us close. In this book, as I'm going through it, 
I realize that I've not been as courageous as my mom. I've not shown that uh, courage to be curious, that uh, ability to reach out and see if I can't find common ground. So the last third of this book is uh, the story of my travels back to Texas, mm. back to Texarkana, uh, back to the South to see if I can't reconnect with my conservative family. And, and even more difficult, my journey back uh, to Salt Lake City, Utah to meet with the leaders of the Mormon church. Yeah, that's quite a moment. And to see what I could find there. That's when you, when you go back to the Mormon church because they are as camp as Christmas and they just don't know it. Um, it's the Mormon Christmas Spectacular and he's like, oh, and you're wondering about the gays. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe read a little bit from later in the book um, because you read so beautifully um, about when, um, when you finally come out to your mother um, um, and how you feel how you feel that goes is three page that So, all right, so this is, oh God, oh my God. Should I set it up just a little bit? Yes, just please, yeah. I've never read this around. No, for the audio book, buy it, it's on sale. It's audio <laughs> uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, so my mom figured out I was gay. I didn't tell her. It didn't go terrifically well. She did get on a plane, came out, I'm giving you the bullet points. She did get on a plane. No, you can go into more, we have more time. It's okay, you don't have to rush. She then uh, got on a plane. That's just my pace. Uh, the, she got on a plane and came out to California for my college graduation. And I, uh, I sort of, I copped out. I didn't tell my friends that my mother was homophobic and didn't accept me. Um, because I didn't want that to be true, because I didn't want to have to explain that. Uh, I, I also never told my friends, many of whom were LGBT, most of whom were LGBT at this point, um, especially at this party we were throwing that my mom crashes, um, that my mom, uh, I, I, never, I never told uh, my mom that I had all these LGBT friends. I never told them that she was homophobic. This was way before Ellen came out. This is before Will and Grace. <laughs> they thought she was like, you know, the gay mother Teresa which the problem there being as we're serving wine and pasta and I mean really cheap pasta from some can or something, we were college kids, uh, and people are getting a little tipsy and drunk, well they start talking to my mom, my LGBT friends, sharing their stories. And, uh, and these are really moving stories I think. These are stories about, particularly back then, many people came to LA, gay people did, because it was warm enough you wouldn't freeze to death if you end up on the streets. And so they're telling the stories of not being able to come home for Christmas, see their families, the stories that were sadly commonplace in 92, 93, 94, 95. And, um, and my mom is a good Southerner, so she's just nodding, listening, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they don't know how to read that because they're kids from other places, so they just kept talking and talking and talking and sharing more stories. Uh, wine kept being poured, and at certain points, because I know who was talking to her, I know that things like gay male hygiene was discussed. <laughs> and I know that my two lesbian friends who love their Doc Martens taught my mom how lesbians do it. Um, <laughs> so I'm terrified. I'm in the kitchen. My, my two roommates, gay roommates, have fled to their bedrooms. Uh, I'm sure they thought it was very funny. And, um, and I'm left there with her. And I just remember, it was a lot like this. She'd be sitting where I am, and, I, and she patted the futon and had me come sit next to her. And we didn't say anything for a really long time. And, um, 
And this is where I'll pick up. Then my mom mustered the courage to turn and show me her eyes. So I turned and showed her mine. We looked at each other like that for as long as we could, about one second. Then she wrapped her arms around me and held me tighter than I think I'd ever been held. At least that's how it felt then to my heart and now in my memory. And she didn't let go. I knew right then and there that for the first time in my life, my mother was holding me for me, all of me. And that she not only loved me with all of her heart, but also loved me for all of mine. In that embrace, in that moment, I suddenly felt stronger than I ever knew I could be, more courageous, liberated, seen, and loved. Her embrace that night lit a fire that would change the course of my life. But how and why had her feelings so suddenly changed? Because yarn had been spun. What I thought had been less than worthless, our gay lives, our stories of tribulation, loneliness, and loss, had been spun into pure gold in that room that night. For the very first time in her life, my mom had heard actual personal stories from gay and lesbian people while she looked them in the eyes and gauged their truth. Those stories had little to do with statistics, activism, movement, politics, law, or the Constitution. My friends didn't think she needed to hear those stories. They thought she was already on our side. If they had known she was some enemy of equality, they likely would have dug their trenches deep and entered into heady debates armed with numbers and scientific and legal jargon. Instead, they talked to my mom like she was family, not a person from some other America. They told their stories with open hearts, universal stories of family, love, and loss. And in one night, those stories set straight generations of myths and distortions. They erased every lie told by our church, our country, and our own treasured families back home, by my mom's friends, her noble military, and our good neighbors. In one night, I witnessed generations of my mom's hand-me-down misconceptions be replaced with love, understanding, and acceptance in one night, thanks to storytelling. I wish I could say that I had planned the night, but I hadn't. Ryan had. Its outcome was an accident. But thanks to this happy accident, I learned the value of speaking to the heart from the heart. I witnessed the absolute and undeniable power of the personal story. The next morning, I donned my cap and gown, shook my troublemaking dean's hand before throwing him a wink, that's a different story, <laughs> and graduated from UCLA's School of Theater, Film, and Television. It was an impossible dream come true for me and for my mom. I was the first in our immediate family to get a college degree. Perhaps her childhood doctors had been right that she would never get one herself, but now her son had. And so she added this to her long list of maternal accomplishments, a list that had somehow survived the past six months and could now grow long and strong again. I'm going to need more of that if we keep going. <laughs> you should beat that bet again next time. 
It's very moving. All right, yeah, I haven't, I haven't done a whole lot of that. Can I ask you one question? You said you were going to do that. Cool. Yeah. Uh, uh, Donnie Wahlberg of New Kids on the Block. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I was, my very first concert was New Kids on the Block, but it was Joey Joe McIntyre. Oh. You were a Donnie guy. Yeah. Wow. We didn't have a photo of them, so it's fine. All right. No, that's fine. They're very, very different. You were into the Butch ones. I liked the little pretty boy, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Yeah. I did, I, I'll, I'll, this is not in the book, so this is a little bonus point, but I did, for mine, I was so humiliated to go, I was in the closet, I was terrified, I dressed up what, at whatever I was, 15 years old, what I thought a reporter would wear, and I got a little notepad with my permed hair to look like Joey Joe, got in line to the concert, and all the girls were like, what are you doing here? I was like the only boy to be found. You yeah. were, I didn't know where you were, I wish we knew each other then. I went, I went with my girlfriend. <laughs> 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 I did. I went with my girlfriend, who was also the first person that I came out to. All right, all right. Um, all right. And who wore, um, and who was the the witness um, at my wedding to my husband, who is up there. Very good. So yeah, she stuck around. Um, well, I told the girls in line that I was a reporter reporting on this concert. I had no true, real interest. And they were like, "Is your hair real?" Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. How did that moment, the, the, the acceptance change? It changed your work as well. I know that that was interesting because at that point you were still making sort of like French Nouvelle Vague yes. kind of, you know, stuff that was trendy in the 70s, but to you it was new and exciting. And, but people weren't loving it. Um, and then you discovered a, a sort of authenticity. Um, you turned inwards, I think, towards yourself, but also out towards the world. You were willing to share stories um, that felt true about your community. And you well, started to seek them out. <clears throat> I mean, it became a bit of a mission, yeah. and it was, uh, uh, you know, I was watching all of my mentors uh, die. I was in, we were up, I had been doing theater up in San Francisco, now I was in LA. Um, it, you know, and this was a period where still families weren't showing up. We were putting my mentors in the ground. Okay. <sighs> you know, without that connection to family, that we all deserve and that love that we deserve. And, uh, you know, and, and, and yes, we were organizing and strong, uh, but it was about survival. It wasn't always necessarily about pushing our rights forward and, and being seen as equal and, and really feeling free. And, you know, I thought, God, if, if a personal story can change someone like my mother, like that, if telling that truth in that way can do it, well, then don't I have a responsibility? You know, if you see someone drowning, don't you have a responsibility? And so uh, I just dedicated myself from then on out to stop making movies that looked like the French New Wave, <laughs> as much as I loved that, uh, and to dedicate myself to telling the narratives of uh, people who are being treated unfairly because of their difference. That doesn't have to just be LGBT people. Um, and, uh, and, and certainly then, uh, that's what my life became. I don't know if, and I, I actually got my start doing a BBC show called Faking It, if anyone ever remembers that, and did the episode, I pitched the episode, and thankfully they went for it right from the, out of the gate, uh, to take a, a sheep shear from a homophobic family and put them in a hair salon, if anyone remembers that. And uh, yeah, it went well for him. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but the, from that to, you know, telling the Pedro Zamora story to doing, um, you know, things like milk and, Let's talk about when Harvey Milk 
when you first heard his voice? Because I was really surprised by that story. I, I thought that you would have come to it in a, in, a, in a different way, but he actually came to you fairly early on um, in your life, in quite a surprising context, too. Yeah, it was, a, it was a turn of luck, and I think that's shameful. It was, I, I heard about Harvey Milk because I um, was in a summer stock theater program in uh, the Central Coast, and I don't know if someone had said something homophobic in our little group of apprentices. We were just teenage high school kids. Mm -hmm. uh, but our mentor, the director, uh, who was well, you know, well regarded at this theater, brought in a boom box, like a big silver boom box and a cassette tape, like a handmade one. And he just said, I want you to listen to this speech. And, and so, um, and all of us gathered around and we listened to it and it, it was a speech that had been delivered 10 years before in San Antonio, Texas, which is where I grew up. And in that speech, it said, you have to elect gay people. Because one day, a kid out there in San Antonio will open up the paper and read that a homosexual has been elected in San Francisco. And paraphrasing, they would have a couple of new options besides suicide or running away from home that maybe they could start to raise their voice and achieve and be. And you have to elect gay people because you and you and you, you've got to give them hope. And I, that was the moment for me. I mean, he hit stop on the, on the, on the tape, which was probably a third generation copy of this speech, and it was the first moment I'd ever heard of an out gay person. Mm -hmm. I thought being out was something that happened to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was certainly the first time I'd ever heard that you could achieve as an openly gay person. And that little kid who was trying to be so quiet in order to disappear and not be seen started to stand up. It would take a while, a while, it didn't happen overnight. I wouldn't go to gay pride parades, I wouldn't come out uh, for half a decade still, but I didn't want to kill myself anymore. I didn't consider those solutions anymore. And I started thinking about achieving. And um, you know, his, I, I, it's, it's no exaggeration that Harvey Milk saved my life. And it's also became a source of fury as I grew older that his story, along with so many of our forefathers and foremothers in the LGBTQIA movement, have been buried in shame, and buried by violence, and buried by bad law. Uh, and understanding the power of a history, understanding the power of knowing you have forefathers and foremothers who came before you and were fighting for your life before you were born, that give you that steely sense of self-worth it takes to live as a minority. And you know, it's, we, we, LGBT people aren't necessarily, are, are, are certainly rarely born into families where the parents understand our struggle. So we need it. We need our history. And, uh, and it had been robbed, 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 robbed from us. It still is, it still is. I mean, I, I would of course then set to work on this, it would take forever, but on this decades long mission to try and tell a movie, something a kid could find in a video store about Harvey Milk, and I'm very still surprised we did it and proud that it's, you know, every time I go on British Airways or American Airlines, it's still there, which is amazing, it's wonderful, but it's not the end, people. It's literally the smallest stone in this incredibly gorgeous 
vast mosaic that has to be rebuilt. Mm. And um, Talk to us a little bit about what it was like being on set in the Castro, which was totally zhuzhed for, for the making of the movie. I visited shortly afterwards and it had never looked so good. Um, <laughs> we, um, yeah. what, what was it like being there with, you know, with, filming the, the, the vigil scene with some of the people who had been at the vigil? Um, I mean, first of all, it was unreal that we were even shooting it. And I thankfully was surrounded by people who had, you know, won big awards, Oscars, and things like that, who kept saying, it's not always like this. Uh, enjoy this, because really the city turned out. Mm -hmm. And we were able to really repaint, clean up uh, the Castro, redo the neon on, on the theater, get it looking like it was back in its heyday in the, in the mid to late 70s, which was really awesome and also a great thing, gift to that community. Um, and I, I do, I remember several moments, but certainly that candlelight vigil, uh, if you've seen the movie, at the, after the assassinations have happened, and uh, Harvey's lover, ex-lover, uh, and the woman who got him into office went down to City Hall, and, um, and no one was there, which is true. There's just a few people giving speeches, politicians and things, but this fairly empty little memorial. And, and they walked out onto Market Street and they saw, in reality, thousands upon thousands marching with candles from the Castro down to City Hall. And we wanted to recreate that. And so we thought, if we just need to get a few hundred. Because uh, if you can get a few hundred plus our principles, you can just digitize in the rest. And so we put out a call um, for extras. And at this point, this is near the end of the shoot, so you know, I think people know what we're up to. And we said, anybody in San Francisco, Go find your best 70s clothes. Most of you remember what that looks like. If you don't, here's what it looks like. Bring a candle, come early, we'll sign you up, hoping we get a few hundred. By like, whatever it was, eight o'clock, when we were gonna start seeing what we had to film, there was a thousand. By nine o'clock, when we're really getting ready to film, there's 6,000. Uh, and, and we're seeing that it's filled up all the way from where we're going to start filling all the way back to the Castro. And it's many of the faces of the people who had known Harvey, people who had been there the whole time, people who survived a plague. Um, and I do remember uh, standing there watching as, as everyone filed by in quiet reverence and remembrance of Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk, who were both killed. Uh, the tears falling, I remember particularly from Gus Van Sant, who's not a man of tears. And, uh, and I talk about it in the book, I also remember that my tears didn't fall. And what happened, what collided with that moment uh, in history was a thing called Proposition 8. Mm -hmm. And we knew that we had won the right to marry uh, for, for gay and lesbian people to marry in California. And now there was this thing we were facing, which was going to take away that right, which likely was, it was going to be a vote at the ballot box. And I was terrified because I had watched how the lessons of Harvey Milk and our forefathers and foremothers who had this more aggressive activist style had been lost. And I knew the new leadership was going to lose Prop 8. I knew it. And I was, I was, I was upset for that, 
and, uh, and I was upset for another reason. I don't know if you want to go into it in the book. Uh, but because I also knew um, during the making of Milk, my big, tough, butch, butch, big brother, hunting, NASCAR, uh, we never got along that well, uh, called me up and came out to me. Halt. And he... <laughs> And he, but did he really not have any clue? No, 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 you would not have any clue. I mean, he literally, when he came out to me on the phone, I mean, I remember, I know all the things I'm supposed to say, right? I, you know, like, I'm, I was well-equipped at this point. I'd screwed up a few coming out moments that are in the book. I was going to get this one right. Um, but what was going through my mind was, are you sure this isn't just a phase? <laughs> <laughs> And my, I mean, truly, he gave, like, I had a New Kids on the Block poster in my room that I covered up, tried to conceal with a Paula Abdul poster because I thought that was going to work no. and keep, keep me in the closet. And he made endless fun of it. I mean, he was just the stereotypical straight guy. And, uh, and, and so I, yeah, I absolutely had no clue. I, m I remember I called my mom after I found out he came out to her as well. Yeah. And with all the drama that happened with me and my mom coming out, I was like, Mom, how are you? And she's like, oh, what the devil do I know? <laughs> <laughs> That's how we all felt, right? She's like, oh. So uh, yeah, none of us knew. What I did know is my brother is a son of the South. My brother is, uh, loved uh, being a part of race car stuff, hunting stuff. He loved Texas, Louisiana, Virginia, where they were living at the time. He, that was his home. That was his America. That was his America, and he did not want to have to leave his home. He was living with my mom at the time. He didn't want to have to leave the area that he loved, the friends that he loved. He didn't want to leave all of that just to, uh, to be free. And in those areas, you can legally still today be fired if someone finds out you're gay. You can be kicked out of your home if you're a renter if someone finds out you're gay, legally, in most states in the United States of America. And my brother loved that part of the country. And so I also was painfully aware that Harvey Milk had been taken from us three decades earlier, and still we lived in some sort of a checkerboard nation where some areas were freer than other areas, and your rights depended on what part of the inter interstate you were on. Mm. And that felt wrong. Mm. And so I remember watching that march and, and both being moved and then being absolutely furious at the leadership of the gay movement at the time. Okay. So... Proposition 8 was, I think, partly supported by the church that you had been a part of. Of course it was. Yeah. <laughs> because this is how you write the book of my life. Of course, if there's going to be the... If my life is going to collide with an anti-gay initiative, uh, that really is, is going to affect me and my generation. Of course it's going to be paid for by the church I grew up in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And... Uh, did that make you... Did you have any sympathy with them at all. I, I, I mean, the church as a child supported you in lots of ways. They, they had been there for you, and then they, they turned against you. And I, I, I wondered at that point, when you were watching the filming and everything else, were you just like, no, enough, I have, I have no compassion left? Or, or was there a part of you that still... I wasn't even... I just wanted to win. And I knew they were wrong. And I, I knew that if we could open enough eyes, people would realize they were wrong. Uh, and I also knew... Uh, and this is partly what is in this book. It's, I, I said, you know what? You know what I'm going to do as we wage this battle? 
as I got out of filmmaking for over half a decade to wage this battle. After you'd won your Oscar. Yeah, I won an Oscar and it put me out of business because I, I made a promise on that stage to win uh, full federal equality. And I made that promise to the young people of the country. And my good conservative Mormon mom set me down the next day and looked me in the eye with wet eyes and said, you made a big promise on that stage last night, Lancer. And I said, yes, I, I know I did. And she said, well, a promise is a sacred thing. And so that put me out of filmmaking. I had a few things to mop up and I did a terrible job of them for about five years. Um, uh, and, that set, and that's when a little group of us decided to sue the state of California in federal court saying that the Constitution ought to apply to LGBTQ people equally, meaning we should have the right to marry. And then if we won at the US Supreme Court, that decision wouldn't just apply to us in California, it would apply to my brother in Virginia. It would apply to all 50 states. It was an insane idea. It was an impossible idea. I was called naive, I was called a fool. Uh, by, by all of my mentors. You were called worse than that. I mean, you met a lot of resistance yeah. from other people in the movement right. who believed that the answer was to be somehow more conservative. Incrementalism. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I have something to say to incremental activists. Your lives are worthy and worth living while you have them. So stop fucking around and get to it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew in order to win that case, or we did, it was a group of four of us and then five of us, uh, I knew that in order to win the case, we had to convince people like my mom. So not only did we have to make the legal arguments that would stand up in court and give us five votes on the US Supreme Court, yeah. I also knew, we also knew, that Supreme Court justices don't live in a bubble. They read the newspapers, they watch the news, they don't want to, they want to be just ahead of where the world's going, not too far ahead. So when we started waging this battle, it, the majority of people in the United States of America said they didn't believe that gay and lesbian people should be able to get married. We had to get that, we had to, to win that uh, in, in the court of public opinion. And I was like, the way to win it, just drawing on that section you had me read, which was a good section now that we think about it, um, was I, ha I had to steal from the Mormon church and the Baptist church, their language. I had to use the language of the churches I grew up in, of conservatism, uh, to make the arguments to people like my mom. I can't come to them with my coastal progressive arguments. That's just not gonna work. And so number one, we hired the most conservative Republican Supreme Court lawyer there was in the land. Who'd worked for Bush. Who worked, he not only worked for Bush, he won the Supreme Court case that gave George W. Bush the White House. I mean. We did not agree on a whole lot outside of the fact that he believed in marriage equality. He thought it was a conservative value. He and wrote he, the piece, didn't he, for Newsweek? For Mike. Newsweek, he wrote, I mean, it was right, it was, we, oh my God, when we told the leaders of the gay movement in America we'd hired Ted Olson to lead our case, I, 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 I felt like I needed to triple lock my doors, like I was in trouble. Um, and, uh, but you know, when he published on a cover story in Newsweek called The Conservative Case for Marriage Equality, I knew we were gonna, I knew we were right. When we went out into the public, and instead of letting our lawyers wax poetic about the law and the constitution and science, no matter how right they were, we let our plaintiffs talk and other plaintiffs talk and other families talk and we told our personal stories and we targeted them at the mothers of these families and these parents of children who might be gay in these areas. 
And by utilizing the tactics of the Mormon church, because I knew them well, and the Baptist church and conservatism, those numbers, by the time we got to the Supreme Court, were well above water. We had won in that way already. And so was I mad at the Mormon church? Well, no. I mean, I guess I should be grateful. They taught me what it was I needed to do to kick their ass. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that you, story doesn't end there. It, you know, there's a whole different thing. Do you still you don't still consider yourself a Mormon? No, I was still, drinking wine on your stage. Oh, yeah. and I have <laughs> I've seen Mormons do worse. Um, <laughs> I have. It's another story. Um, uh, and do you still consider yourself a Christian? Uh, you know, here's my thing. I am a, I, I'm a student of a lot of different faiths at this point. It's a part of just my curious uh, part of myself. And I really do like this person uh, named Christ. I thought, he seems like a wonderful guy. I'd like to hang out with him. He's also hot. I'm just going to put that out there again. It, well, I, I grew up half Catholic, and all the Jesuses in my pictures, I was like... Oh, yeah. Michelangelo yeah. liked to... He got him all ripply. I mean, I'd like to go out to the desert with him for a while and see what he was taking. Like Jesus that would be Burning fun. Man. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> so you but Christians, no. No. Okay. I mean, I'll take the Christ, but the Christ I haven't found an organized Christian religion that hasn't warped and distorted the message of Christ so much so that it seems to be doing the exact opposite of what he was preaching. Yeah. So I do not have a home for my faith. Uh, but I, but I, but I, think, I think Christ was really onto something. But there's other people I think were really onto something as well. Um, at the end of the book, you write a beginning, not the end. So, so is that a beginning for you, for us, on what level is the, the end the beginning? Well, I think that if the purpose of this book was to uh, demonstrate how me and my mom were able to find common ground uh, in a time when most would say we were too divided to ever do that, um, that we were too politically divided, our beliefs were too far apart, that we, we should have been a house divided, um, yet we were thick as thieves. I mean, I spoke to my mom every single day. Um, and I hope in that you start to understand that the necessary components, what's what I watched her do and it's what I learned to do in the last third of the book, was to show the courage to show up and to talk to people you don't agree with politically. And then show the curiosity to not sit there and talk at them, but to listen. And the really important thing I think we always figured out, and we, I try to put it into my work, is yes, I believe in science, I believe in the Constitution, I believe in the law, and I believe it's all on my side. But if I bring that to the argument with someone who's very, very different than me, all they're going to do is dig deeper into their trench because they believe it's on their side as well. What you have to do is take that extra step to figure out the story, hopefully your own, a personal story that illuminates the law, that illuminates the Constitution, that illuminates the science. Come at it like that, and what you start to find is common ground. Uh, and, you know, I, I think one of the examples for me is when I went back to Texas and my cousin Lynn, who was incredibly homophobic, didn't want anything to do with me. We got, we got a little drunk. It's easier to find common ground in the South because you can have whiskey. In the Mormon church, it takes a little longer. Um, but at a certain point, I just decided I wasn't going to hold back about talking about this 
guy I'd met in the United Kingdom uh, who's a diver and he was really hot and I'm sitting there, you know, talking about how he's going to put me in the poorhouse because A, I'm taking the first vacations of my life to go see him and, and B, it's a really long trip and I can't work during those trips. And he pulls out his phone uh, and he shows me a picture of his girlfriend on their trip to Hawaii. And he's like, oh my God, she's gonna put me in the poorhouse too. She wants this and that and this and that. And she wants to see me all the time and I can't get my work done. And I had this moment where I was like, that's it. That's finding common ground. He's not gonna lead a pride parade. But right then and there, he compared his love to mine. He sought and felt it as mine. And if I needed any further proof, when I went to Dallas, Texas to do a book signing inside of a church, by the way, build a bridge, he showed up in his overalls to be there to hug me. And he posted on Facebook that he had come and he said, I know I'm gonna lose some friends for posting this about my gay cousin. And he didn't. The phone calls over the next few days from him were, oh, I just found out that my, you know, my, my friend Fred's, his daughter's a lesbian too. <laughs> yeah. But that's the work that has to be done on, I think, the most powerful stage there is for change in this world. And I'm saying this as a filmmaker. I'm saying it sitting on a, on a very auspicious stage. This isn't the most powerful. The most powerful stage in the world for creating change is the dining room table. Invite people to it who think differently than you. Show the courage to do that and the curiosity to listen and to share very personal stories. And what you'll find is that there is a higher plane of existence than politics. How absurd is it to say that we live in this miraculous universe on this beautiful planet and we're gifted with these ears and these eyes, these hearts to be able to feel and these days, you turn on the news and they'd have you believe that the highest plane of existence in all of this beauty is whether you are Tory or Labor or a Republican or a Democrat, it's fucking madness. Just before the sofa catches fire, um, I, and we've just had it re-upholstered, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take some questions from the audience for Lance. So if you can put your hands up as the lights go up. Yep, there you go, question here and a question there and one there. So we'll come, the microphone's gonna go to you first. Yeah, pass it along please. Thank you. Can we get some more wine on the stage? Yes, please. As well? I think I think we really do need. And not that watered down kind they were pouring yeah. in the green room. Yeah. <laughs> um, go ahead. Hi, thank you for that. That was really inspiring. Um, you wrote a film about the first openly gay elected official in the United States, and I wonder how you feel about the fact that there is now a top tier presidential candidate who's identifying as gay. Yeah, I'm in Mayor Pete. Pete. How do I feel about it? Yeah. Part of all, everyone knows about Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg. Um, Buttigieg. Buttigieg, is that yeah. how you say it? Yeah, Buttigieg. Yeah. You'll get you it. Met, you met him. You'll on... have to say it a lot once he's president Buttigieg. of the United States. Oh, get well, that used was, to it. Get that ready. would be so amazing. You uh, met him on tour, right? I did. Yeah. I, our, my book tour crossed paths with his uh, presidential tour. Um, and we met because, one, actually, because the kid who was running the coffee shop sit and spin in uh, the Castro, where you could get a coffee and spin your laundry, um, sure. Yeah, he's now like his campaign finance chief. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's great. Uh, and so he called. He heard I had landed in Dallas. He's like, "Get down here right this instant," and I did. And uh, yeah, it was a great 
meeting. I mean, an incredibly substantial uh, man. Like, uh, I, I think... What do you think about the criticism that he's too conservative and too cookie-cutter for the, for, for the people? I'm asking I think, I think people, I think for right now, uh, first of all, compared to what's in the White House right now, he's not too conservative. Yes, yes. Um, and and I, I, don't hear that, I don't hear that criticism a lot from my American friends, but maybe it is um, something you hear here. I don't know. Um, if, but I do think that it absolutely fulfills that call uh, for gay people to run for public office. Uh, the message of hope that's sending is, is, is massive. It's incalculable. The fact that he's a top-tier candidate, he's in the top four, he's in the top three in some of the early states. I mean, there is no doubt there is like a young, probably not out of the closet yet, lesbian in Salt Lake City, Utah, who will uh, become the president of the United States in a few decades, thanks to what she's seeing happen right now. Okay. And, um, Do you think he can get the nomination? I don't know. I, okay. It doesn't, it's really, I just want to, I hear, I get asked these questions a lot in the States uh, on political shows, and I say, <clears throat> guys, just FYI, it's June of 2019. Yeah. Who knows? What you do right now is you listen. You listen to what everyone's saying. A lot of people are going to fall down and say things that, you know, make you realize that's not who I want to be with. Uh, there are several candidates who I really like. Pete is absolutely one of them. But I also have to say, uh, in the LGBTQ rights movement, we can often be rather myopic about our own needs. And that is not the way for us to, in this country, make sure we defend our gains and to make sure we make more gains elsewhere. The way to do that is to lock arms with other minorities and other people who've been treated unfairly under the law. And in society, you have to lock arms. You have to have those coalitions. So there are a lot of candidates, I think, in this race right now who are also Harvey Milks, who would be breaking through a ceiling and breaking through barriers. And I think LGBTQ people should be equally excited about Kamala Harris yeah. as they are about Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, ladies' question there. Yes, you. Hi, Hi thank you for your comments. Really, really interesting to hear. Um, I was wondering, I often think that an outsider, forgive me for saying that, has a really interesting perspective on, um, you know, their, their new host country. What are your views of the differences between the LGBT movement in the US and in the UK? What do you, you know, what are your perceptions of what's happening here and how it may be different from the States? Well, this has been such a, the UK has been such a beacon of hope for so long for LGBT people, not just in the United States, but around the world. Uh, you know, certainly leading the way on things like marriage. Um, and I would say this, though, what concerns me right now, uh, especially on the heels of just saying that it's our, our coalitions that make us strong, our most vital coalition is LGBTQ. There's a T in there yes. for good reason. <laughs> and so I would ask you, when you're reading in the papers or online or on Twitter, these things that are incredibly divisive, that seek to remove the T from LGBTQ, that are telling lies and distortions about our trans family members, do the hard work to find out who's saying it and where they're getting that language from. Because they're borrowing it from some of the most hateful right-wing folks in the United States of America who we would not listen to. Places like the Heritage Foundation funding folks to spout this trash about our trans family members. Do the homework before you buy into it and believe it. 
because our coalition is what makes us strong, and it is a heartbreak to the rest of the world to watch what this country is saying and doing to its trans family members. Stop it. I'm going to say that's actually a really good place to end. I want you to join me in thanking Dustin Lance White. And Tracy Thorne. Come on, come on, come on.